0: I told you a couple of weeks ago we're going to start a new uh, sermon series this week, and this is it. It's called Commission. And you're going to be hearing more about this. Today is really an introductory kind of a message, um, but we're going to be digging in together to the book of Acts and trying to get a look at what it's really like to be the church. So to start with, let's go ahead and go back in time a little bit, right? A time to when uh, the printing press was a new thing. The Reformation had happened only recently. The year is 1646 the place is Scotland. And there in Scotland, where it seems like the great theological minds always hang out, they gathered these great group of theologians for one purpose, and that is to come up with a great tool for teaching the doctrines of the church, the most profound, the most uh, significant things of the church. And so this group of theologians gathers and by the time they break their meeting they have written what has become known and is still used today the Westminster Shorter Catechism now raise your hand if you know what a catechism is right a few of us most of you are former Catholics right if you raise your hand what I knew about catechism growing up was that sometimes my buddies had to miss baseball practice because they went to catechism that was as much as I knew. But a catechism is simply this. It's a, a tool to teach doctrine, and it's a question and answer format that you memorize. And so you memorize the question and the answer to that question, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism has been continued to be used as sort of maybe the greatest reformed Protestant catechism that has ever existed. So the first question is, in the Westminster Catechism sort of rephrases the great question that thinkers have been asking for all time. And that question is this, what is the meaning of life? Like, what's it all about? That's the question. And the way they ask that question in the Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? It's a great question. I mean, it's a question that deserves your consideration. If you've never thought about it, Now's a good time. What is the chief end of man? That's the question that the student memorizes. And then the student memorizes the answer, and the answer in the catechism is simply this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's good, right? Nice, succinct statement. The chief end of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. You and I were created for a relationship with God that is a reciprocal relationship. It has a give and take aspect to it. On the one hand, we exist to glorify God. I hope when you come here on Sunday mornings, it's an extension of your week, which is an existence to glorify God. I hope that it's not just that you set aside an hour on Sunday mornings and that's your glorify God time, but that you understand that as a child of God, your whole existence is about glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. So on the one hand, we exist to glorify God, to worship Him, to honor Him, to be pleasing to Him. There's a lot of ways we could say it. Paul described his singular purpose and ambition in life with these words. He said, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. He boiled it down into one purpose. He said, My purpose in life whether at home and in the context of the passage, 2 Corinthians 5, the context of the passage is, whether at home in my body or absent from my body and at home with the Lord, either way, whether I'm here or whether I am there, whether I live or whether I die, whether I am toiling on this earth or whether I am enjoying the presence of God in heaven, whatever the case, for all time and eternity, my purpose is, is to be pleasing to Him. Or you might say, to glorify Him. Or you might say, to worship Him. Or you might say, to honor Him. All different ways of saying the same thing. Guys, if you came in here wondering today, let me clear it up. That is why you exist. To be glorifying to God. And the reciprocal part of that is that when you live in that relationship, you receive the blessing... Of enjoying Him forever. For how long? For how long? And how long is that? (laughs) You guys are smart. Good job. When does forever end? Never. We're talking about eternity, right? That we we are created, we exist so that we can glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And that doesn't end just when you get old right? It's it's not you can enjoy God until you die. It's forever. Jesus put it this way. He said, I came that they might have life and more abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So that's a pretty good answer to the question, why do I exist? But what happens if we just slightly tweak the question? What happens if we rephrase it just a little bit? What if instead of asking, why do I exist, we ask, why am I here? At first glance, it kind of sounds like the same thing, right? But if you think about it, it's an entirely different question. Why do I exist doesn't take into account time and space, right? It's whether I'm in the body or I'm absent from the body. It's whether I'm on earth or whether I'm at home with the Lord. It's both now and forever. Why do I exist is a forever statement. Why am I here considers that I have been placed in a certain place and a certain time in human history and that I am unique and in this place and time. Theologians call this the scandal of particularity and all that that basically means is it's a way of explaining the fact that when Jesus being eternally God comes to earth as man, he has to come at a certain time. It's just the nature of things, right? He has to come to a certain place. He has to be born into a certain family. He has to be of a certain race. He has to be of a certain gender. He has to be in a particular situation, Well, not just Jesus, but we deal with the scandal of particularity too. You were born into a certain family at a certain time in a certain nation, you're of a certain gender, you're of a certain race, all of those things are particular about you, right? So why am I here considers the fact that I am in a certain place at a certain time. So those are two different questions. Why do I exist and why am I here? Now, which one of those questions does the Bible address? Thank you, both. It addresses both of those questions, but the answers to those questions are slightly different. Every person ever created by God was created for the same ultimate purpose, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's true when you're a fetus. So how does a fetus glorify God? Hey, have you ever been a grandparent and gotten a picture of an ultrasound? Have you ever seen the video of what it looks like when the child is developing in the womb and all you think is, don't tell me there's no God, right? When you're a fetus, you exist to glorify God. When you're an a, um, infant, when you're a teenager, when you're middle-aged, when you're a senior citizen, when you're as old as Jim... Whatever the case, it doesn't matter if you're on your deathbed or if you've already been in heaven for a million years. You still exist to glorify God. Your purpose never changes. You're created for that. But your time on earth is limited. You won't be here forever. You're just passing through. Some of us we, we look in the mirror, or you see an old picture, and you go, I remember that guy. Where did he go? I was just sitting here watching the video, and I saw some fat, bald guy, and I was like, who's that guy? What happened? See, our overall purpose is in effect while we're here on earth, but according to the scripture, the way that purpose is lived out during our relatively short time on earth is very specific all living people who are born again we share a short-term mission and that's what we're going to be talking about it's a mission that can't be carried out in heaven think about that for a second there are some things that your life can be about on earth that your life cannot be about once you get to heaven you're not going to do any caring for the sick while you're in heaven You're not gonna do any ministering to the brokenhearted while you're in heaven. There won't be any grief counseling in heaven. There's not gonna be any witnessing and evangelization to do in heaven. There are certain things that are true about our, our time here on earth that are not going to be true about our time in heaven. So we're on this mission, and it's a mission that can't be carried out in heaven. It can only be carried out on earth. And so much of the teaching of scripture assumes that we know that don't miss this right if you're, if you're reaching the point of the sermon where you're starting to doze or check your emails don't miss this the bible assumes that we know that we're here on a specific mission so so much of the teaching of scripture assumes that the application of that teaching takes place in the midst of our mission so that we can succeed at that mission. So let me try to illustrate. It's pretty much universally agreed upon that the single most elite, most uh, effective, most highly trained fighting unit in the world is the United States Navy SEALs. Now, um, what a lot of people don't know about me is that I was once a Navy SEAL. And then I woke up from that dream, and I went back to being me. But I'm fascinated by Navy SEALs, so I read everything I can get my hands on about their trading and what they do and how it all works. And, and the U.S. military is filled with well-trained soldiers and sailors and airmen and corpsmen and all of these different people And there are elite groups like the Green Berets and the Army Rangers and the Delta Force and all of that kind of stuff. But at the top of the heap sits the Navy SEALs. And a ton of people who are in the military would love to be a SEAL. But only a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of military personnel are even chosen to go to SEAL training. And of those who go to SEAL training, which by the way is a 24-week course um, that is really not so much a course as it is a test. And for 24 weeks, they push you beyond the limits that any human being would normally allow themselves to be pushed. Mentally, emotionally, physically, intellectually, in every way you're pushed, right? And of those tiny, tiny, tiny few that are chosen to go to SEAL training school, a tiny percentage actually make it all the way through, 20%. 20% make it through the 24 weeks. They literally push you, literally, I'm I'm not joking, they literally push you to the brink of death on a daily basis so you can learn how to deal with being pushed to the brink of death. And one of the things that they do is when you get to SEAL school, day one, first thing they do is they assign you what is called a swim buddy. Now, your swim buddy, that sounds fun, right? That sounds like, you know, little floaty things on your arms and <laughs> that. It's not like that. Here's what happens when you go to SEAL school, you get a swim buddy on day one, he becomes your partner. You are not allowed for the next 24 weeks to be more than three feet apart from him at any time. You sleep in beds next to each other, you shower at the same time under the, the two different shower heads that are three feet apart. You eat together. You, when one of you has to go to the bathroom, you both have to go to the bathroom. It is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you're ever found more than three feet apart from your swim buddy, you're out. What a crazy concept. Why in the world would they do that? And then, and then they push them to the limit. Why do they do that? They literally risk the lives of these men just in the training. Why do they do that? Why do they undergo all of this harsh training? Why do they learn to work as a team? Why do they learn to rely on their swim buddies? Why do they learn to take their orders from the chain of command? Why do they learn to do all these kind of things? Very simply, it's because of the mission. There's a day coming when they know they're going to be put in a situation that is so dangerous that if they don't get this straight, they will die that is so important that if they don't get this right, other people will die. And so they put them through this, why? It's not so they can become incredibly physically fit, which they do. It's not so they can become incredibly highly trained warriors, which they are. It's not so they look good in their navy dress whites, which they do. It's so that when the mission comes about, they will be able to succeed in the mission. They do it because of the mission. Now, let's get out of this discussion on warfare and let's return to a discussion of something even more important, even more dangerous, even more significant, where even more is on the line. Let's talk about the mission of the church. We talk about the question, why am I here? What's my short time on earth? really supposed to be all about what am i doing to prepare for that mission see i think a lot of christians can recite verses and by the way you notice i haven't picked up my bible yet bear with me it's introductory we're gonna dive in but i think a lot of christians know what this book says about the mission i think a lot of christians can quote it chapter and verse in terms of what it says about the mission. We know what Jesus said about our mission, but if we're honest, we have to admit that we don't live our missions on a day-to-day basis as if we take that mission seriously at all. We know we're supposed to glorify God. And, and in the modern, I'd say, 21st century American church, we generally equate that concept with times of worship, right? I don't know what it's like for you, and I can't help myself in times of corporate worship. It's the the highlight of my week, every week. To be here with you guys today and hear voices being lifted as we lift our hearts and our hands and our voices to the Lord, there's nothing like it. But a lot of us as Christians have gotten so serious about this idea that we're supposed to exist to glorify God that we think times of worship that have been set aside are the whole point. And so as a result of that, most churches work hard at creating more and better ways for their church members to enjoy the process of worshiping God. You gotta have good music you got to have good lighting. You have to have good sound. you got to have the video. you got to have all of that kind of stuff, right? And believe me, I'm all for that. But is that why we're here? Is that the whole story? Think about it. What are the criteria most of us use when it comes to looking for a new church? We, we think about, you know, it's got to have great music, at least for me. It's got to have great music. If the music stinks... I'm not interested, and, and it's got to have great preaching, at least in a lot of churches. You guys seem to have given a pass to that, but in a lot of churches, it's got to have great preaching, right, and, and there, there's got to be all kinds of programs, something for the kids, something for the teenagers, something for the young adults, something for singles, something for married people, something for seniors, all that kind of stuff. We've got to have good programs, and, and we have to have a staff that that will take care of those programs and look out for us and all that kind of stuff. And so what do churches dedicate most of their budget to? We build buildings and we hire staff so that we can keep programs going. That's how the American church works. And I'm not saying those things are not important. They are important. But they're not the point. Without realizing it, So much of the American church, to a great degree, has skipped right past the part about glorifying God, and we focused on the idea that it's just about us enjoying Him forever. Listen, the Bible is full of instructions about how to live as Christians, about how the church is supposed to behave. Over the next several months, we're going to be digging into the book of Acts. As I said, today's mostly introductory. But in the next several months, we're going to be digging into the book of Acts, and we're going to be um, looking at the church in the first century and asking what we can learn about being the church in the 21st century. The book of Acts is full of amazing examples of how the early church participated in things like amazing fellowship. I mean, the fellowship that they had in the book of Acts is incredible, and they were dedicated to it. Uh, they had amazing times of corporate worship. They had uh, powerful spirit led prayer gatherings. They had deep spiritual friendships with one another in the body of Christ. They had the teaching of the Word of God that was paramount to them. They, they practiced the one another's of Scripture because Jesus said, They'll know you are my disciples by your love for who? One another right? So they did all of that kind of stuff. They had intimate and deep relationships in the body of Christ, and we're going to see that in the book of Acts, and we're going to dig into all of that and learn how to do that better ourselves. But as we contemplate the book of Acts, we're going to notice that the first century Christians, unlike so many 21st century Christians, to them, those things were not an end in themselves, They were a means to an end. You see, one of the things we tend to forget about God is that God is, by definition, a missionary God. The whole reason Jesus came is because God is driven by a mission. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Why? Because of the mission that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The whole reason the church exists is because God is driven by a mission. It's a mission to give life abundantly. It's a mission to seek and to save the lost. It's a mission to set captives free. It's a mission to heal the sick. It's a mission to bind up the brokenhearted. It's a mission to bring eternal life where death had reigned for so long. And too many of us know all about the mission, but we live as if the mission is a low priority to God and that it somehow pales in comparison to the high priority of making my life on earth more enjoyable for me. Yeah, I said it. Do we live as if we're here so that whatever needs to change so that my life can be more enjoyable is what happens? Or do we live with a sense of mission? Remember what I said, Everything in the scripture is written with the understanding that we, the reader, know that we're on mission. To the Navy SEAL, it is important to develop a strong relationship with the swim buddy. Why? Because of the mission. To the Navy SEAL, it's important to be incredibly physically fit. Why? Because of the mission. To the Navy SEAL, it's important to learn how to follow orders from your chain of command and carry them out without question. Why? It's because of the mission. To the Navy SEAL, it's important to become proficient in all kinds of warfare tactics. Why? Because of the mission. For the Christian, it's important to have sweet times of fellowship with God and other people. Why? Because of the mission. For the Christian, it's important for us to gather and worship together and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because of the mission. Why do we build buildings? Why do we hire staff? Why do we give sacrificially? Why do we exercise our spiritual gifts as the Lord has given them to us? It's because of the mission. Our God is a missionary God and His followers have to be missionaries too. In the book of Acts... We're going to learn how to have great fellowship, and we're going to work on it in our own lives. In the book of Acts, we're going to learn how to teach and learn from the Word of God. In the book of Acts, we're gonna learn how to pray during times of trouble. In the book of Acts, we're gonna learn how to love and support one another in real and deep ways. In the book of Acts, we're gonna learn how to plant churches and spread the gospel. In the book of Acts, we're gonna learn how to deal with blessings and adversity. In the book of Acts, we're gonna learn how to worship God earnestly with all of our hearts. We're gonna learn how to share the gospel and so much more, but let's never forget the why. It all comes down to famous last words. Aha. Open your Bibles. Oh no, he's just getting to the Bible. We're gonna be here till lunchtime. Matthew chapter 28. It's all overview today, guys. We're not digging in deep. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. We come to the very end of Matthew's gospel, and here's what we have. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up. This is the resurrected Christ meeting with his disciples. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What's he saying? He's saying, I am your commanding officer. What I'm about to say to you must be carried out. It must be taken seriously. It is not here for you to question. I have all authority on heaven and earth. And here's what I have to say to you. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A book filled with amazing stories and incredible life-changing teaching, the book of Matthew. And how does it end? With these words of Jesus ringing in our ears. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to, to observe all that I commanded you after reading the whole account of Matthew's gospel, that's what God wants ringing in our ears when we close the book. After spending three full years with his disciples, after teaching them every single day, after making all of his speeches and preaching all of his sermons, after correcting the Pharisees, after cleansing the temple, after facing all of his trials, after dying on the cross, after raising again on the third day, what are the famous last words that Jesus wants to leave his followers with? Go and make disciples. You have been sent on a mission. And when we pick up the book of Acts and we begin to read, Where does God start the story of the world-changing church? Flip over to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. This is written by Luke. So he, like Matthew, has given us a whole gospel account, and now he gives us his second account, which is the book of Acts. And here's what he says. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach... Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to those he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, that's a fair question. They come to him and they say, hey, could you just tell us, is this it? Is this what we've been praying for? Is this what we've been waiting for? Is now the time that you're restoring the kingdom? That's a legitimate question. And here's what he says. I know that question seems important to you, but I have something to say that is far more important. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jerusalem, the city where they are. Judea, the surrounding area, maybe something like the county, right? Samaria, the neighboring land where the people are sort of like them but not exactly like them. Even to the remotest parts of the earth where people look different, act different, speak different languages. Over the course of time, my story my gospel my mission is going to be carried out jesus says through your life in concentric circles of relationship as you are my witness go and wait you will be baptized that is immersed in the holy spirit and that relationship will fill you with power power to do what to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Power to make disciples of all nations. If you're a Christian, that's why you're here. You exist to glorify God, you're here for the mission. And if you've been taking God seriously, then you must face the fact that you are invited. No, actually, that you are commanded to make your life about the mission of making disciples of Jesus. That's what your time on earth is about. And the rest is a means to an end. Let's let's wrap it up with verse 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Uh, can you picture this? He talking, and suddenly... I mean, there must have been organ music, right? There had to be angelic voices. There must have been clouds parting. I can't imagine what this was like. You're just sitting there, and you're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, he's talking. And all of a sudden, he starts to levitate. You're like, is this like a David Blaine thing? How does this work? But he just keeps going. And you are in shock, and you are in awe, and you have been watching him go up. And now you look, and you can't even see him anymore, but you can't take your eyes off the clouds until you hear a voice. And the voice says, Hey, stupid, what are you looking at the sky for? Did you hear what he said? He said, go to Jerusalem and wait so you will receive power so you can be my witnesses, so you can change the world. Stop standing here and go get on the mission. That's what Jesus said. That's what the angel said. And of course, they followed, but I'm getting ahead of myself. As we get into the book of Acts, we're going to watch God carry out his mission, and we're going to realize that the mission's not complete, and he's going to carry it out through us. If an angel were to visit us today, and just look at the workings of our lives. And just look at the way we do church. And look at the way we've organized our priorities. Look at the way we spend our time. Look at the way we spend our money. Would he not say, Hey, stupid, what are you doing? Why are you looking into the sky? He's given you orders. What are you going to do with the orders? of the commander-in-chief of the commanders-in-chief? That's the question we're going to ask. That's the answer God's going to give us as we look together at the book of Acts. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, this day, we want to thank you. We want to give you all praise. We want to honor you because you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our honor. You are worthy of our praise. And Lord, we are thankful that you haven't just um, let our lives be meaningless, that you haven't just made it about a few years that we have on earth, but that you have given us the opportunity to live a life of great purpose, to glorify you, to enjoy you forever. And now we ask, God, that you would meet us as we worship you, and that you would be lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.